This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a all things Hellraiser podcast. And Mr. Brian Christopher, we are actually back in full blown Hellraiser territory. How's it going, man? Uh, I'm I'm happy. I'm excited. I feel like this is a little bit of a a retcon uh, for the <laughs> egregious way that I was left out of talking about Bloodline on your wow. horror queers episode. Uh, yeah, I'm coming out swinging, sir. <laughs> you know what? It's ironic because we we've had you on two successive episodes, but that was the first one we ever did, right? So yep, and I hold a grudge. I didn't think that anybody liked that movie, so I didn't want to put anybody else through it. Yeah, and here and here I was just standing twiddling my thumbs going, well, why didn't they ask me? <laughs> well, yes, we are making it up. So, folks, we are talking about Hellraiser Bloodline, but not just the film. We are also talking about Peter Atkins' original screenplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Um, I think this isn't going to make for an interesting conversation, and I think a couple of... Um, uh, for for those of us who are hoping for maybe one day seeing hashtag the Jaeger cut, mm-hmm. uh, I I, th- I think some of the exploration of the intro by Peter Adkins might have uh, kind of dashed uh, that dashed our bit. hopes on that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It's interesting because okay, so folks, we're we're gonna lay it out on the table. We're gonna talk about the screenplay and the differences compared to the film. But yeah, Atkins basically opens this by saying, "Hey, if you were ever hoping to see a version of what you're about to read." Just let it go because it's not going to happen. But here's the thing, Brian. I have seen at least still images of a working cut. And I do know that they filmed other sequences than what we actually see in the theatrical release of Bloodline. So there is still some kind of Jaeger cut out there. It's just we're never going to see one with like clowns in it. Yeah, I, I, I get the sense it's kind of the similar thing as honestly the, the Zack Snyder version of right. Justice League where, yes, there's some footage lying around, but I don't think they're going to have uh, HBO or Warner Brothers willing to lay down 30 to 40 million additional dollars mm-hmm. to uh, to reshoot something that was shot, uh, what, 25 years ago? Almost 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think we're going to get that same treatment. So it would Mm-mm. be nice if they found a way to, like, polish up what they did have and work it into maybe an expanded version. But, yeah, I right. think Atkins basically dashed our hopes of, like, there's never going to be what is written on the page for the original screenplay is never fully going to make it to screen. Hmm. So this was released you know, there's a whole rights issue with why this didn't get turned into some kind of novelization that Atkins also clarifies in that introduction. But this came out a little under about a year and a half ago. I'm curious, Brian, have you ever read a screenplay before? A couple of times, actually. I remember back in the day, like back in the early days of the internet, mm-hmm. reading a copy of Hellbound. Uh, the Okay. The, the original sequel to Hellraiser, mm-hmm. uh, the the one that still had Larry Cotton involved right. as as the person that that Kirsty was in fact trying to save from hell. Uh, mm. It was kind of interesting because it was kind of like I was I wasn't sure because it almost read to me almost like fan fiction. You know, I, right. I, I I didn't really you know have the the concept of like the different iterations that scripts would have gone through. Mm-hmm. So like I wasn't sure if I was reading something that actually existed or like someone who was doing wishful thinking about right. what Hellbound could have been. In hindsight, now that I've seen kind of the the canon trivia about the 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 way that process went, that yeah, indeed that I was probably reading, you know, an original screenplay on that. So mm. it was a different experience doing it with this one because I do feel like the one for Hellbound had a little less personality to it. And I mean that by saying like Adkins, I think did a really good job at introducing this because mm-hmm. his screenplay really does a lot of like talking to the reader. 
Right. You know, and breaking the fourth wall. And as he explains, he's talking to like, you know, business executives that probably have no idea like <laughs> what how is to... a hellraiser. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, they need things spelled out for them. And so mm-hmm. you see a lot of that in the screenplay. So going into it with that context made that an even more interesting read because I didn't find myself going like, well, why is he spelling this out? Of course, that's what this is. Like mm-hmm. he knows he's writing this not for Hellraiser fans, but for numbnuts executives that like just need to kind of figure out how can we monetize this? So you right. can tell like a lot of those references back to earlier installments are his way of saying, like, this is why I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. This is why this sequence is important. This is why this line of dialogue needs to be included. And yet, I'll confess, I also personally found it helpful as someone who is a bit of an aficionado of this series, right? I kind of liked having my hand held a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I found that Atkins is a really effective screenwriter. I mean, No big surprise. He's written a bunch of screenplays to movies that I actually quite like. So, uh, you know, folks, he he did do two and three. He also did the screenplay for Wishmaster, which, like, I don't think that any of these movies are flat out amazing. I think Hellbound is probably the best of those that we've mentioned. Mm. But he's obviously an incredibly talented writer in terms of evoking imagery like i could so easily imagine the sequences that were not filmed and not included in bloodline in my head like the clown sequences which i've now brought up twice are so evocative yeah yeah he's he's so good at it's not just a screenplay like he manages to work almost a pitch for the screenplay within the screenplay right yeah, you know, the the way he sets the table and the way he sets everything up goes towards like this is why this is going to land. Like this is mm-hmm. why people are going to enjoy seeing this. You know, and I right. think he's I think he's really smart in the way he goes about it. Hmm. So why don't we step through this a little bit? So folks who know Hellraiser Bloodline know that it is infamously divided into three, not quite even acts. Because rewatching the film for this, I. I was frustrated with how little time we actually spend in old-timey France, right? Mm -hmm. And this screenplay, I think, does a very interesting job. Obviously, we knew going in that it was going to be chronological because that was one of the pieces of studio interference. They felt that there wasn't enough pinhead, so we didn't want to wait to get to him until (laughs) the present time. So the film infamously included the space stuff and really just said, oh, hey, now you're not going to be surprised when we go into space in the last act of the film. Atkins's screenplay doesn't do that, right? Like we start very traditionally uh, and we move in chronological order. So what did you think of this first act that is entirely set in 18th century France? I really liked it. I I like the idea of, I don't see any universe though, you know, in terms of people going into this movie and not knowing that eventually this is going to wind up in space because I Mm -hmm. feel like there's no way they're going to leave that out of the trailers. Right. But I do think it, it would be an interesting experiment if Mm -hmm. they were as vague as possible with the marketing just kind of let you know, you know, they're pitching the idea that Pinhead's going to die. You know, I remember right. that kind of being the big thing about Bloodline. It's the final chapter. Yeah. And and I think it would be interesting if they found a way to keep that space element kind of behind a curtain. Mm-hmm. You know, because I think that would have made for a really interesting movie going experience to watch this. To first of all, watch this movie that takes place, you know, you're starting off in 18th century France. You know, and then like to make that leap into the present. I think that alone would be interesting if you don't necessarily know that's coming. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it would have been a really interesting experience to be able to see that without knowing that, like, a present day or, or basically just how it was how it was going to be, like, this big epic sweeping thing. It would have been right. cool to experience that for the first time. Uh, also, just to backtrack a little bit, for anybody who is not familiar with the the production saga of this you know when we talk about jaeger cut kevin jaeger was the director he was so unhappy with the way the producers who we shall not speak their name for miramax Mm. came Mm. in and interfered with the process that he just asked his name to be removed from it entirely and it became the infamous alan smithy film which Mm -hmm. anybody knows is the pseudonym for 
the director when the actual director doesn't want their name attached to it anymore. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what we talk about, you're going to hear, you're going to hear studio interference a lot, I think, when we're explaining this. Yeah, <laughs> because, I mean, you even mentioned it off the top that Atkins wrote this screenplay for dumb, dumb studio executives who don't really understand what or how is important within the script. And by that, we are referring to the Weinsteins. So mm. this was, I, I gathered one of the first Dimension products. So this was the kind of fledgling genre spinoff from Miramax that the Weinsteins were launching, where they were going to release all of these titles that were more genre specific and they wanted bloodline to be one of the first ones and part of what they ended up doing was not just cutting extensively the budget of the film very soon before production began so it was like very difficult when you've got this whole movie planned for them to go back and say "Ooh, we actually can't afford to do this because we're not giving you as much money which means we're now also going back to peter atkins and saying you need to cut whole pages, whole sections from this screenplay because we're not going to shoot that. We don't have budget for it anymore. Yeah. This was the first, at the very least, the first Hellraiser installment that Miramax like produced. Uh, mm-hmm. They did distribute part three. Okay. Um, but yeah, this was the first one where they had their hands in it from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's a big old mess. It's, you know, Atkins says repeatedly, like even the the intro for this screenplay, uh, he how does he put this uh, for Hillary, who found their relationship with this force one was, well, what shall we say? Complicated, maybe, mm-hmm. um, which I think pretty well describes like even even our enjoyment of this comes with caveats. So, you know, oh, for we, sure. we as staunch defenders know that there are problems with this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, that's all a long kind of winding road to get to your original question of how did I appreciate the, uh, the approach of just going chronological. I think that would have been the more interesting route to go rather than giving you the heads up. Because I, I also get a little tired of the whole like starting off with an in media res kind mm-hmm. of a situation and then going like, but let's go back to like, you know, normally it's like three months later in this case, it's 200 years or like 400 years earlier. Uh, so yeah, I would have liked to have just seen it start in France and let it unfold from there. What, uh, what do you think? Well, I think the way that we ended up getting it suggests an inherent distrust of the audience's ability to grasp the concept of the film which is very firmly laid out in the literal title bloodline mm-hmm. so we're mm-hmm. going to follow the toy maker or you know the le marchand family as they make their way through history and of course you know we've got the same actor who's embodying all three generations of this played by bruce ramsey really kind of forgot that he is just not a strong enough screen presence for me. I think he does better in certain sections than others. I actually think he's most comfortable in the present tense, but he's really quite bland in the future, and he's a little uncomfortable embodying a Frenchman in the opening sequence. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say if I if I had to rank uh, if I had to rank his performances, I would say present day is is number one. I mm-hmm. actually liked his his future performance because, okay. especially after like we'll we'll get more into this with uh, when we get into the future but you get a sense that he is uncomfortable in his own skin and he's Mm -hmm. not really this is a character that's not really concerned with being a full human being he is concerned with his objective so i think that works for me but yeah i think of of the three the the 18th century france doesn't work i I at least appreciate that they didn't try and give him like a bad french accent because that would have just been really i think distracting yeah the interesting thing about the screenplay, so there's there's some fairly significant differences in the early section, and it kind of trickles off a little bit as we move forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about all of these differences, but the main thing that I thought was fascinating is that Angelique, who is kind of the pinhead antagonist so she and pinhead are both servants of hell and she was there before pinhead because she recognizes him but she clearly ruled before him as we'll come to know in the present tense Mm -hmm. but she's the antagonist in this first go around along with uh the duke de lille who is the the guy who commissioned the box 
But in Atkins's original screenplay, Angelique is already there. She's not a mm-hmm. sex worker who gets murdered and then reanimated as a demon. And it's one of the more perplexing kind of, ooh, I want to know more elements about the screenplay that she's a demon who's just there. We don't get her origin story at all. Yeah, I think they just they hint at it. They make it more explicit in the theatrical cut because in the screenplay, she's there. Uh, they incorporate this whole scene with like a bunch of gamblers mm-hmm. uh, that they get to open the box to to kind of show like, OK, this is how the box works. And now it's right. you know, working as as designed. Um, but they only hint at the summoning circle mm-hmm. that in the theatrical cut is much more explicitly shown in terms of <laughs> we push a table. There's just a fucking pentagram on the yeah. floor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I think I actually, I appreciate the original screenplay of like only giving you those kind of little hints because I do think it pays off as we get into the present day in terms mm-hmm. of them kind of like, showing behind the curtain of Angelique's true form. So I think this kind of gets to that where they're like, they're keeping her more of a mysterious character. Mm -hmm. And and I guess it doesn't really, (laughs) I guess it tracks, you know, when Mm -hmm. we think Miramax and wanting to spoon feed people and going like, well, no, they're never going to be able to follow that, make it more explicit about what happened and then call it a day. Right. And why do we suddenly have this female antagonist and who are these other characters? So the, the gamblers end up getting dispatched by this group of carnival workers that Mm -hmm. work for Angelique. And I think the big set piece that we definitely don't get filmed and wouldn't have been filmed in the Jaeger cut, because this would have been part of the budget cuts, was... So Le Marchand's friend, August, who is... uh, He's working at the university. We see him briefly in the film where he's he tells Le Marchand, well, you built this box, which means you know how to unbuild it or how mm-hmm. to send them back. He ends up having this absolutely brutal death in the woods at the hands of these carnies, yeah. one of whom just basically unhinges their jaw and mm-hmm. like drops him in. So, yeah, I really appreciate the carnival troupe, the clowns as kind of like the the precursors to the what we know is like the modern day Cenobites. Yes. You know, had a much different flavor. I I think Mm. it also plays with that idea that we do get in the theatrical cut somewhat where they talk about, you know, there's less titillation and and, and enticement in the current iteration of the Cenobites than what we had in the past. So Mm -hmm. I do think it would have been cool to kind of see that a little bit more fleshed out through Angelique and her troop versus Pinhead and, and his group of Cenobites. Yeah, because the impression that I got from reading the screenplay is that they they have the kind of otherworldly skills that the contemporary Cenobites that we've seen in the past have where they can manipulate flesh and do these magically wonderful, horrible things. But they have a very different flair or vibe to them, right? Like in some ways they almost seem more human and then they're revealed to be secretly agents of hell. And I'm you're you're 100% right. I like this idea that they're similar, but very different because they work for Angelique as opposed to whatever Pinhead would fashion his Cenobites in. Yeah, it's, it's you know, they, they have the same end game, but it's like a different means to the same end. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's uh, a little bit more. I, I do like how this word seems to come up a lot when we're talking about Clive Barker or Jason stuff, but like there seems to be more whimsy. Right. Um, like dark and mean spirited whimsy in, mm-hmm. in this kind of first iteration of, uh, or I guess, I guess that's another interesting thing. Like, you know, maybe not even the first iteration, you know, who knows how many permutations right. of, of kind of like hell's troops there are or have mm-hmm. been. Um, so this is the one that I think kind of fits with the time period, you know, we're talking about pre-revolutionary, you know, France, you know, where this kind of like playful but ultimately like you know very dark and dangerous uh version of hell is kind of what's the order of the day and then yeah as we get more into the modern day we get that much more like clean line ordered version Mm -hmm. of the cenobites that we know and love yeah i mean angelique also seems more duplicitous right she's more interested in seduction which is still something that we see in the finished film whereas you know, Pinhead is very straight lines by the book. Why would I bother to dance around things when I could just literally go and abduct this man's child and say, do what I fucking want? 
which is also a very interesting contrast when you think like the whole point of the original Hellraiser mythos was that, yeah, it's this combination of pleasure and pain. Mm-hmm. And now it seems to be much more like punitive. You know, right. there, there's still that element of like, yes, they enjoy those feelings, but it's not, especially when you contrast it with Angelique, who her mm. version now is seen as more like the, you know, tempting pleasure and giving pain. Yes. And now, now they're seen as more of just like the mechanical kind of industrial version of, of hell's process. Mm-hmm. It's what happens when men take over for women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> So it's it's almost like it's almost like Pinhead has taken over for Frank Cotton as being right. the the guy who like you know thinks he knows what titillation and temptation is, but actually mm-hmm. just doesn't know shit. <laughs> yeah, part of what I end up enjoying and also being simultaneously frustrated about Bloodline is how endearing and fascinating I find Angelique. Right, like mm-hmm. the series has never. I mean, it tried to do it in two. But I find, oh boy, do I ever find Chenard a boring iteration of this, <laughs> like as a bit of a usurper or a challenger to Pinhead's crown. Mm-hmm. So I love the idea of exploring what does an all-powerful female Cenobite look like. And Angelique isn't even a Cenobite in that capacity, right? Like she's described as either a demon in the film or like the one true ruler of hell who because she was forced to abdicate for so long because she was being held prisoner in human realm Mm -hmm. uh that kind of made the way for oh well we need somebody new to take over enter pinhead someone filled the vacuum kind of thing yeah exactly which is exactly what would happen right Mm -hmm. but i love the way that her character by virtue of being a woman by being sensual she does accentuate different kinds of things that we i think we thought we already knew because we had seen these three previous films like we thought we had a working order of how pinhead and the cenobites operate and then this historical interpretation not just shakes that up but offers us a completely different way of doing things Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I also appreciate, you know, we're going to see in the, the present day segment that there's also a lot more to her than mm-hmm. Pinhead. Pinhead is just kind of like the BDSM shark who is just going to kind right. of keep going forward and, you know, sinking his hooks into people. And you get more from Angelique about like her connection with Le Marchand and then specifically, you know, John Merchant gets murky. Where, Mm -hmm. like, her undoing is a level of, like, actual... She seems into him, right? Yeah, I don't know if affection is the right word, because she is a demon. But, like, yeah, there's a, um, like, a It's almost a reticence to hurt him. Yeah, yeah. Or or at least, like, you know, I think she'd like to find some way of, like, hey, let's do this thing together. As Mm -hmm. opposed to me just using you for it. Uh, You know, I think you get that idea of push comes to shove. She's going to get what she wants. But, yeah, she's... She's more conflicted, and, and I think that comes out even more in the screenplay than it does in what we get in the theatrical cut. I fully agree with that. And this is one of those things where, you know, in our notes, you've got the words the present day most closely aligns with the theatrical release the screenplay mm-hmm. does. And yet I found that this was the part that I was almost the most frustrated with because these little seemingly insignificant details we learn a lot more about Angelique and she feels way more fully flushed out, pardon the pun, (laughs) in this moment because we get a better understanding, again, of how she differs from Pinhead and particularly because the two characters are actually meeting in this sequence, we get a better sense of their conflicts. Like, she is going against Pinhead, but in the film, you don't ever truly understand why. Like, Pinhead just shows up, and then he puts a hook into her chest, she bleeds, and all of a sudden she seems to be working for him. In the original screenplay, it's a lot more combative, and it's a lot more interesting to envision what that would have played like on screen. Yeah, like she gets such short shrift in the theatrical cut. Uh, You know, I I don't think... I don't think they fully get there in giving her like a, a fully fleshed out story in the original screenplay, but it gets a lot no. closer. It's better. Yeah. I, I still think it falls apart in the third act in terms 100%. of her 100%. Um, but 
Yeah, I think for me, like, you know, and, and I think we're we're starting to kind of uh, segue into the present day. And yeah, I think a lot of the, this is the one that gets closest to what actually wound up on screen. But the one scene that is missing and really shows kind of Angelique's like more nuanced characterization is the scene where she and John are getting together physically. And mm-hmm. it's the sex scene between John and Angelique where we really get that conflict and that nuance because she accidentally lets her guard down because she is getting into it. Like she is getting actual pleasure about the things that John is doing to her. Mm -hmm. And because she's not keeping that facade under control, he sees her true demonic form. And that's kind of where things fall apart because like it it breaks the spell basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And her ability to seduce him is gone. And that's when Pinhead then has to step in and say, okay, well, we tried it your way. Now we're going to do it mine. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it shows that really interesting dynamic and it makes Angelique a lot more interesting. And yeah, you lose a lot of that from from what we get on screen. And, you know, you can kind of get the undertones of the conflict. It's the old guard and the new guard. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Pinhead's going to Pinhead. So he's not really interested in, in the way things used to happen. Right. So, yeah, it, it's pretty kind of straightforward and in some ways less interesting because of that. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that Sure. If you don't want to reveal what Angelique really looks like because we added in that scene where she gets filled up like a sausage roll in the feature film, you know, we see the skin hanging and then it gets filled in. And mm-hmm. it's a really great effect. And I I like that in the finished film, which clearly was not in the original screenplay that Atkins made. But it means that we therefore either didn't want or didn't need this sequence where we get to see what she really looks like. But the other problem then is that Because we keep these sequences where Merchant has sexy dreams of Angelique. So that appears in the screenplay and then it actually appears in the finished film. But that's the only time that they actually have sex. The rest Mm -hmm. of the time in the film, it just seems like he has a fixation, like she can put a spell on him. Mm -hmm. And then that's broken when Pinhead steals his kid. By not including the second sex scene, though, it just makes the sexy dream feel like, oh, it's a mid-90s film. We got to show this actress's tits. Yeah, yeah. And it also it takes away from the Le Marchand storyline because in the original screenplay, both in uh, France and in the present day, there's a lot more leaning into him being seduced by mm-hmm. possibly working with Angelique. A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's it's more active than just kind of being under like a hypnotic spell. Like he, in the one in France, he comes very close to just doing, like actually siding with them, kind of knowing yeah. what they're doing and saying like, well, this is going to be my my ticket to like, you know, fame, fame and fortune. fortune. Yeah. You know, and it's not until he like really looks down the barrel of, of what that's going to look like that he goes, oh my God, I can't do this. Well, and it's also important then that August does have that sort of horrible death, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's the, the the way it's on in the theatrical cut just kind of really truncates both of those characters, uh, mm-hmm. the, the the Le Marchand characters and Angelique, and doesn't really give them the chance to kind of be as fully fleshed out as they are on the screen. Yeah, the other piece that we're missing, and we get the tiniest little mention of it in the film, is Merchant actually has scenes with a grandmother who was trying to prepare him Mm -hmm. for the battle to come. So it wasn't just, oh, I'm having weird dreams of this historical connection to my predecessor. It was, no, this was information passed down each generation. Somebody had the responsibility of imparting it on the next male merchant line. And in this case, we actually get to see the grandmother doing some of that. And that character doesn't appear at all in the theatrical cut, which kind of makes no sense then when Merchant's wife, who's played by Kim Myers, says, you know, oh, like your grandmother was weird. She always like brainwashed you with that stuff, making you feel important. You're just like, why is that even in here? Oh, because it's a holdover from the original screenplay. Yeah. And it is kind of funny how like with all the studio interference and all the ways that they had to like reshape this thing as they were going that definitely now seemed like a big like oh 
Uh, mm -hmm. That was a loose end we didn't tie up in terms Oops. of, uh, yeah. <laughs> or it was they, they, they wanted, maybe maybe it was like, this is the last semblance of some reference to how this works that we want to leave in there and we'll let people's imagination fill in the rest. But I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think, I think e either, uh, either seems equally plausible in terms of how that wound up getting left in there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So there's one other significant deviation in this second part, and that is that there is no twin Cenobite creation. So in the theatrical cut, we get these twin security guards who have a fear of being separated and they get fused together in arguably one of the best practical effects sequences of the film so you can really see jaeger's uh specialty doing this kind of work right yeah yeah and it, it is i feel like this is kind of one of the few instances where that that tweak for the theatrical cut it's better i like that present yeah i like that scene mm -hmm. and even like the the weird banter between the two security guards beforehand is like weird and clumsily charming like they're just these two dunderheads <laughs> like the conversation they're having is very it's bizarre it's i remember bizarre. Trace and i had a whole yeah. conversation like why are we talking about having sex with a trans woman in a yeah. 1996 film in some ways it's kind of progressive yeah yeah because he'd be like yeah i'd be down with it like for mm -hmm. 1996 it was progressive yeah. let's you know, we're not yeah. trying to say like, we're contextualizing is, yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's not great but you know yeah. what it's a lot better than other things we were doing back then and, and the fact that it's just these two like very quote-unquote traditionally good-looking blonde-haired like dunderheads mm-hmm it's just enough to kind of make you feel kind of bad for them when they're sure. when they're going through this this whole process. Um, now you say that, but in the original screenplay, we have a female security guard single mm -hmm. named Valerie, mm -hmm. and I I found that the screenplay did a good job of humanizing her in a very brief short period of time. But yeah. the problem was when she dies really unceremoniously she drops down an open elevator mm -hmm. basically she gets into an elevator and then the floor drops out of it and it drops her into hell literally goes to hell yeah <laughs> it, it felt mean like not yeah. fun it was just whoa yeah this character did not deserve this fate yeah, because like she, there's reference. She's a mom. She does the smart thing. She's like, no, I'm going home. She gets I'm the not, fuck out of there. <laughs> I'm not dealing with this because I I got to go back to my kid. I'm not gonna mm -hmm. like yeah. And then she just falls into like the abyss and winds up getting sent to hell. Yeah, there is something like kind of mean spirited about that, especially because it doesn't go anywhere. Exactly. It's just a death, and we're like, whoa! Like <laughs> you're introducing a single fucking mom, so you can just kill her. Yeah. No, and she doesn't even become a centibite at the end. Like that's no. that's that's mean. Yeah, it's mean. It was too mean. I think yeah. the tw the twin thing is also a little bit mean, but even by virtue of changing the sex, all of a sudden having this happen to Ben, I was kind of like, eh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's something. There is something about that where it's just like, yeah, I I find myself finding this less mean and also mm -hmm. i don't know if they're scared about being separated like they're not separated so yeah. in a way at least at least in their eternal torment uh that they, they at least get to do that together they're kicking around like 150 years together yeah. in the yeah. future so yeah <laughs> and and makes the actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the original screenplay because you don't see them get created uh but they still have that element of like they separate and then reattach and mm -hmm. they add a line in saying like i'm terrified to be separated from my brother and it's like well they didn't really mm -hmm. establish that in no. any way in the, the original screenplay so yeah I, I do feel like that is the one most solid adjustment from the screenplay to the theatrical cut definitely an improvement but um Speaking of things sort of falling apart, why don't we shift into the third act, which is sure. set in 2127, I want to say? I yes. think so. At least in the movie. And I think it might have actually been like a different year in the screenplay, but like, mm -hmm. honestly, Arbitrary. who cares? Yeah, it's the future. <laughs> it's the future. Yeah. I will say this was the section of the screenplay I was most interested to get to because I'd heard about some of the other differences. I'd heard about the Carnies. I had heard about Angelique's slightly bigger presence in the present day sequences before I read this. So I was curious to know if there was any substantial differences in the third act. There are, but 
I was surprised to discover that a lot of the weaknesses of the theatrical film are very much still present in the screenplay. I don't think that this is a good third act. <sighs> yeah, and and part of it is because they try and extend their grasp to different narrative points or, or thematic elements mm -hmm. that almost make it worse because they don't go far enough. And at least in the theatrical version, they just do away with them entirely and right. just kind of turn it into like, I don't know, the third act is basically just like, okay, we're going to go balls to the wall. It's going to be mm -hmm. like, you know, kinetic. It's going to kind of just like really get it's into action, it. Action, yeah, action, exactly. Um, and they try in, in the screenplay, they try and add these kind of plot elements. So, you know, I think the biggest difference is that instead of Rimmer, uh, who is the uh, one of the agents or soldiers from the, the government team that comes and tries to take over this, uh, the, the space station. Right. Uh, it's a person that was acting as uh, Merchant's, uh, in this case, Paul Merchant's assistant. Right. Corinne Cotton. Which mm. I, th I think is, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they give her very little other than the fact that like she's there to help him. She carries a torch for him. I, yeah. I would be interested to know because they don't at all like acknowledge like, is she a... Um, descendant a of descendant of Kirsty Cotton, yeah, right. yeah, um, or is it just like a cute nod to the last name? They don't really mm -hmm. mention that. In fact, she doesn't really get a lot other than no. like to show you how little her character development really means. They basically just took all of the sequences with Corinne and with Paul, mm -hmm. did away with her, and just had Rimmer take those over, yeah. uh, with no change in the really the impact to the plot at all. No. I did find the one surprising thing was I, I had had it in my head that I thought Rimmer was actually originally written as a man. Yeah. And no, it was always written as a always woman. Always a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in the, the original screenplay, Rimmer is killed very quickly. She's just yes. among the cannon fodder of that, that, that troop that comes through. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of these sequences are sort of still the same. We get a mirror death that's kind of like somebody gets decapitated moving between dimensions. Mm -hmm. Angelique kind of gets a little bit more to do, but also not. Yeah. And again, I think just enough to show that, like, she was an important character, but we don't really know what to do with her in this third act. Because there is a bit yeah. of a, a small moment between Paul and Angelique where he... You know, sees that whole through line, that thread that he's had with her. Mm -hmm. But again, at this point, she is just now like a, a henchwoman for for yeah. Pinhead, and she doesn't get. It, it would be more interesting if like she was given some kind of agency in this last mm -hmm. act. Either like maybe she's like, "Fuck it, if I'm if I'm relegated to this, I'm gonna help Paul to fuck over Pinhead," and maybe she helps him in some way or something to give her more than just like, "Yeah, now she's just one of the satellites." Yeah, and and we didn't really acknowledge it, but she kind of gets a bigger confrontation with Pinhead where she does try to backstab him and it just doesn't work in the present mm -hmm. day sequence. Yeah. And I think you're meant to infer that that's why Pinhead then has her as a more docile kind of subservient underling in the future. Mm -hmm. But part of that, I mean... I'm not a dum-dum, I could read between the lines, but it also felt like it needed to be said because having Angelique show up in the screenplay or in this theatrical cut and she's just kind of there hanging out, mm -hmm. it isn't dramatically satisfying because she was our sort of primary antagonist, at least in that first third of the film. And then she was a secondary or equal measure antagonist in the present day. And then she's just there in the third act. It feels like we introduced this really significant, important character and then didn't know what the fuck to do with her. Yeah. And I feel like this is the thing. Like, I will die on this hill. Angelique should have been the primary antagonist. If you want to do Pinhead, have him show up for a scene as like a baton pass or something or have him be like, we teleport him in so that we can blow up this spaceship at the end i don't know it probably wouldn't have been satisfying but like this movie does angelique dirty and neither the screenplay or the theatrical cut seems to know what to do with her and it's really really annoying yeah because i mean and they've painted themselves in a corner by having this be this is the movie where we're going to kill pinhead so yeah. if they're going to do that and they're having it be this big like sweeping epic 
if they go back to Lamarchand's time, they can't have it be Pinhead because mm-hmm. Canon has already established that he doesn't come around until the 19, what, 20s, 30s, something like that. Right. And so they need to find someone to kind of fill in. And so they have, they're on the precipice of this great idea with Angelique. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Colonel. <laughs> yeah. They, they have to get so concerned with, well, no, this is ultimately the movie where we kill Pinhead mm-hmm. that she just gets sweeped off to the side. And it's almost one of those things where it's like, you, you almost wish they would have seen what they had and realized that they needed to go down a different path. And like you said, I think this would have been like, you almost have two movies. You have this that is all about Angelique and really flesh that out, really mm-hmm. let that be its own thing. And then maybe in a different movie, you go and like work in like the, the, the death of Pinhead. Right. But it's like they, they basically try and wedge two movies into this one and both of them suffer for it. Absolutely. And what's interesting is even just having this conversation with you, hearing you talk about, you know, oh, we could have done things in a different way. This is almost like two films in one. It takes me back to when we first started this podcast. <laughs> Remember mm. back when it was a limited series, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've forgotten no. about that. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a part of our we've, lives now. We've always been here. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but it, it makes me think, you know what? How fucking awesome would it be like we always talk about why don't they ever bring back julia cotton she's the fucking best Mm -hmm. what if they brought back angelique and explored a version of this without pinhead without Mm. being indebted to the legacy of that character and doug bradley who let's be honest is not coming back for this yeah yeah like you could do something really interesting with what does a version of this story look like under angelique's realm or or who is that character like give her a more fleshed out more meaningful storyline either in a standalone film or in that fucking hbo series which we have still heard absolutely nothing about so in my mind i'm imagining it's probably doa but this could be an interesting alternative right where you still get to explore the legacy but it's in a completely different fashion I mean, that's always been the missed opportunity with this series because they've gotten so latched onto Pinhead. Mm-hmm. They ignore the fact that there is such a larger universe to play in here. Exactly. And like that's where a TV show really could have shined is showing the different corners and different aspects of the, the Hellraiser universe and the, mm-hmm. the fact that that's not just Pinhead. Yeah, or or do this epic battle of wills between someone like Angelique and new Hell Priestess, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you've got fucking Jamie Clayton, bring her back, give her an antagonist in the spirit of Angelique, and let these two wage war with humans caught in the middle. We've done it before. It's called Freddy versus Jason, only I think this could be a lot more visually interesting because you could really go to hell and just do it and this is where this would shine as a television show because this is something where if you are really getting into the weeds about like the machinations and just like the sabotage or the back and forth and Mm -hmm. just like all the different stuff that you could play with in terms of like this battle of wills between these two demonic entities that is something that i think could easily fill at least a season of television Right. I mean, I'm thinking back to our Scarlet Gospels conversation where we were so gobsmacked at how amazing it would be to see that origami massacre Mm -hmm. on screen, right? Like, use that as your starting off point and then pit these characters against each other. God damn it. Now I'm just mad because I know this is is not going to exist. And this should exist. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so so bringing it back in, <laughs> pulling it back in. There's one other note, which is that in the film, of course, we have Paul and Rimmer <laughs> escaping so that we can execute this. Uh, I mean, I still remember in the theater going to see this back in 96, baby, and being like, oh my God, the spaceship is a cube. Yeah, yeah. It's no. so dumb, but I love it. I love it to pieces. I, I'll be honest, Joe, loved it then, love it now. I still yeah. love that sequence. It's, st- it's like amazing. It's, it's terrible 90s CGI. It looks awful, and I love it. But yeah, and, but the whole thing with like just Pinhead getting blown back into the wall, his face just like deteriorating in this Mm -hmm. blast of light like it's it's a really well shot sequence and i Mm -hmm. like the way it plays out 
I honestly, I like that Paul gets away that he gets to kind of like, I don't know, as like a reward for finally fulfilling his family's like bloodline uh, and debt. the supposition that it might continue because he and the final girl have gotten away together, right? Like maybe mm-hmm. they'll pork and then we've got more merchants <laughs> on the way. But this is not how it happens in the screenplay. Yeah, yeah. It kind of turns into this kind of like epic, like he's going down with the ship. And he kind of allows himself to to be sacrificed to kind of keep a hold of Pinhead long enough for the sequence to run its course. Mm -hmm. And I I get the kind of thematic importance of that where it totally makes sense. It's it's atoning for the original sin of his family bloodline. But we were never going to do this in a major motion picture. Like, you can't end this movie with a Debbie Downer sacrifice. (laughs) Like, we saw this in Alien 3, and audiences revolted. (laughs) Which is interesting, because I think part of the revolt was just like, you took all of these beloved characters that we've loved over the past two movies and Mm -hmm. just, like, obliterated them. them. I I, I think there would be less... Uh, flack about doing that with this character that you're only just getting introduced to in this movie. Like, I think they kind of pulled it off. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I don't have, like, super big emotional stakes in one way or the other. I could see it being a good sequence if he does die. Mm-hmm. I also like that he got away. I don't know. There was something that was just like, oh, good for him. Yeah, He gets to go be an actual human being now. Yeah, and I think both of them work. It feels... It is interesting, right? Because technically we're, I think one of the challenges that people have with Bloodline is that we don't actually have a main protagonist, right? We have three different iterations. And again, I don't think Ramsey is the strongest actor, so they all act very similar and they Mm -hmm. all kind of look similar despite the changes in bad wigs. But (laughs) at the end of the day, Merchant is stand-in character like he's somebody who's there to guide the plot along and we're meant to care but because i don't feel that same connection with him that i felt with kirsty or julia it's fine right like if he had a died sacrificing himself so that he could finally end this cool he gets away with rimmer also cool yeah exactly yeah that's exactly i don't have strong opinions about merchant yeah he's there (laughs) he's there yeah (laughs) Okay, so I guess to wrap this up, what are your feelings? Did you enjoy the screenplay more, less? It's just a different story. I I, I think it would have made it incrementally better Okay, from what we got. I don't think it would have like changed the game in mm-hmm. terms of my enjoyment of this movie. I, I think there would have been some better uh, aesthetic elements had we gotten more of those sequences from the, the 18th century France section, but, um, and, and things are a little bit, I think, more fleshed out with Le Marchand's various characters and with, with Angelique, but I still think it would have fallen short in fully doing these characters justice. Mm-hmm. So I think it would have been just like, you know, if, if I see, <laughs> if I see, bloodline the theatrical cut as like a c minus mm-hmm. uh or a c plus maybe uh i would have seen the the original uh, screenplay being like a b minus like it would have been a little right. bit better but not like oh this is a completely different movie yeah i mean for me there's something so audacious about being willing to set what is often described i disagree but often these films are described as slashers and to take one of the kind of big five slasher villains and say, we're going to cut this story up across three different timelines. And then we're going to kill this fucker off. Like hats off to you for gumption, right? (laughs) We will probably never see a movie quite like bloodline from a major horror franchise ever again. Maybe because it failed, maybe just because it's like, who does this <laughs> but that's part of the reason why i have always admired and loved this movie because it is so fucking ballsy it's just yeah. so different from everything else that we ever see in any of these franchises so for that i was always gonna love it i really went into the screenplay hoping for redemption for angelique so in my mind, it's a little frustrating that we don't really get much more. But the glimpses that we do see of her character at least made this a recommendation. Like, if you've liked the character from the film and you wanted more from her, I would absolutely recommend reading the screenplay because the glimpses into who the character could have been is fascinating. 
it still drops the ball on her in the third act. So you're right. I I think it's a little bit different. I think it would have played marginally better. I think people would have been really excited by the carnival characters. Mm -hmm. But still, we we lose them in the last act regardless. So it still would have been a kind of uh, missed opportunity. But you're right. I think it would have played slightly better. Agreed. Okay, so I'm very curious because obviously this was a recommendation from listeners that they wanted to hear us tackle this. I'm curious to know if people felt differently, if they think the screenplay would have made for a much stronger film, or if you would have liked certain sequences incorporated, but you still prefer the theatrical cut. I want to know. Yeah, me too. Let us know. But Mr. Brian, this is not the end. As we said, we just live here now. This is what we do all the time. <laughs> so uh, such sights to show will continue. And I'm excited because we're continuing with our listener recommendations. Somebody asked us to check out Hellbound Hearts, which is an anthology inspired by Hellraiser from a number of different authors. I think there's about 21 different short stories written by a cacophony of authors. And this was edited by Paul Kane and Mary O'Regan. So that's what we're going to read next. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I always like the idea of being able to see other people's interpretation of source material. So mm -hmm. like, I, I like to see like how are, how are other people going to handle the concept of Cenobites and, you know, the, yeah. the Hellraiser universe. So yeah, this is, I'm excited for this one. Me too, because, you know, we read the toll and we were underwhelmed, <laughs> but I think part of that was that it was a novella that either needed to be a short story or it needed to be a full length book. Mm -hmm. But we were really taken with the comics where a bunch of different people kind of dipped their toes in the Hellraiser water. So I'm actually hoping this is a bit more, like narratively fulsome versions of that comic book experience that we had. Yeah. I also like the idea that it's like, I'm, I'm sure like any other kind of like short anthology, uh, there's going to be hits and misses. Sure. Uh, so I like the idea that like, even if there's ones that we don't super dig, there's probably, I have to imagine some of these I'm going to enjoy. Um, right. So by, by having this many different kind of voices in there, I think it just heightens the chance that like some of these are going to like really catch on for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is fun. This is kind of a it's an amalgamation of a lot of conversations that we've had between the comics, between the toll, between even the books of blood that we've been reading. So yeah, uh folks, come back next time when we talk about Hellbound Hearts. Mm-hmm. squad.